Harvard Divinity School. Black Religion and Critical Theory Colloquium, Panel 2, October 5th, 2023. We uh, are resuming our Black Religion and Critical Theory Colloquium with our second panel. We have Dr. Carrie Day, who will be our first speaker. She is Professor of Constructive Theology and African American Religion at Princeton Theological Seminary. She earned a BS in Political Science and Economics from Tennessee State University, an MA in Religion and Ethics from the Yale University Divinity School, and her PhD in Religion from Vanderbilt University. Her teaching and research interests are in womanist, feminist theologies, social critical theory, cultural studies, economics, and African-American Pentecostalism. She has authored four books, most recently Azusa Reimagined, A Radical Vision of Religious and Democratic Belonging. She has been recognized by NBC News as one of six black women at the center of gravity in theological education in America. And that is the shortened version of her bio, which is uh, beautifully extensive. And we are so grateful to have her here for this gathering. Her paper is entitled Joy, Care, and Wonder in Black Thought, a conversation between black feminism and black religion. Our second panelist is Dr. Joy James, who is the Ebenezer Fitch Professor of Humanities at Williams College. Her most recent book is In Pursuit of Revolutionary Love, Precarity, Power, Communities. Her recent articles include a letter of concern to black clergy regarding Cop City with the Reverend Matthew V. Uh, Johnson Jr. in Logos and a four-part series on abolition alchemy in Inquest. She is the author of Resisting State Violence, Shadow Boxing, Representations of Black Feminist Politics, Transcending the Talented 10th, and Seeking the Beloved Community, a Feminist Race Reader. She is also the creator of the Digital Harriet Tubman Literary Circle at UT Austin and the editor of the New Abolitionist, Neo-Slave Narratives and Contemporary Prison Writings. And she is currently working on a book uh, entitled New Bones Abolition, Captive Maternal Agency, and the Afterlife of Erica Garner. And the second text is Contextualizing Angela Davis. Her talk today will be from one of those forthcoming projects, and, and it is titled New Bones Abolition, Captive Maternal Agency in the Afterlife of Erica Garner. Our third panelist is Paul Anthony Daniels, who is a PhD candidate in theology at Fordham University, the rector of St. Mary's Episcopal Church in LA, and a 2021 recipient of the Ford Foundation Predoctoral Fellowship, his dissertation, Impossible Glory, The Mystical Life of Black Study, tracks the structural affinities between black studies from the late 20th and early 21st centuries and mystical science from the late medieval to early modern periods. He has forthcoming journal articles and book chapters exploring sacred eroticism, negativity and political disassociation, uh, the cosmological turn in black studies and the queerness of Howard Washington Thurman. Reverend Daniels is a 2012 graduate of Morehouse College and a 2019 graduate of Yale Divinity School. His talk today is entitled Black Religion's Impossible Work. If we could please welcome these three scholars with a round of applause. Thank you.
Good afternoon. It's a joy to be a part of this conversation. Thank you again for the invitation, Professor Mudd. And um, it's just been wonderful to hear our colleagues uh, from the previous panel. And I actually asked to go first, which uh, is rarely asked by uh, panelists because I thought there um, was a lot of continuity uh, to between uh, my paper and the two panelists, as well as some of the questions that were posed um, in the conversation. So my talk attempts to capture what black feminist scholars who work in black studies might contribute to the study of black religion and how black religious theorizing might be useful for black studies in discussing futures of possibility. And particularly when I'm thinking of possibility right now within a current project, I'm wanting to think about uh, the themes or practices of wonder and care. Drawing on black feminists such as Akia Iman Jackson, Christina Sharp, and Alexis uh, Pauline Gums, and in the back of like my project is sort of Sylvia Winter, which has already been talked about. I maintain that part of any possibilities of care in the midst and despite black death is rethinking black existence away, particularly within my field, rethinking black existence away from religious ontologies or what might be described as the ontotheological, right? And what I mean by the ontotheological here is a kind of ontology of God that sort of gave rise in the modern period to a theology of being. And we've already had some discussion, right, about the question of being and the question of being uh, being um, uh, sort of index, right, to the ontological framework of anti-blackness. Um, and so in many ways, what I'm trying to do in, in this project, and it's called a decolonial theology of spirit, um, it's to sort of theorize, um, uh, theorize any possibilities of care uh, um, in the midst and despite black death. It's rethinking black existence away from religious ontologies then, or the ontotheological, and toward apocalyptically oriented apophatic cosmologies. So I'm going to spend some time sort of unfurling, right, sort of qualifying um, this very long phrase that I have here, what I'm, I'm trying to work toward, because the apocalyptic was also mentioned right um, uh, in the conversation. So again, wanting to move toward an apocalyptically oriented apophatic uh, cosmology. So through black religious theorizing, I desire to develop an experiment with apocalyptically oriented apophatic cosmologies, what I'm referring to as spirit, that can inform and shape practices of wonder, care, and joy. I briefly mentioned my work on the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 out of Los Angeles, the Azusa Movement, as an example of apocalyptically oriented apophatic worlds of care and joy in, under, and despite an anti-black order. And I think it's important, for, again, for me to qualify the in, under, and despite, right, an anti-black uh, order, because I think within much of my field, there is um, sort of an appeal to the language of transcendence, right? And with transcendence, I think this is something that was mentioned, Joseph, with you. Uh, it's sort of these triumphalist narratives, right, uh, of, of overcoming as such. There's a, a real queasiness and anxiety of talking about death. And there's an immediate move um, um, to life. And part of my discussion, really, I, I'm going to say this because I think that thinking is a collaborative enterprise, has been in conversation with my doctoral student, Rebecca Wilcox, who's in the room. 
So in my current work, I foreground why attention to the materiality of the world. And when I say materiality, I'm just not referencing physical matter as such, but imaginations of matter. We, we, you know, we were all just talking about that. Um, and here, I don't mean, I think within religious discourse, imagination is an inherently moral category. It's often used in that way. Um, and I want to steer away from that, right? I, I also want to attend to the ambivalences of the imagination because we also talked about world, world and worldling. There's a sense in, when, in which the anti-black order is a kind of an imagination of matter, which J. Cameron Carter takes up in his new book, um, The Anarchy of Black Religion. So I foreground why attention to the material of the world, which involves both ruin and regeneration, cycles of death and aliveness, helps one reimagine the possibilities of existence. What I also mean by materiality is, a re uh, is that I reject traditional ontological hierarchies, especially those that seek clear categorical distinctions between spirit and matter. Body and soul, uh, soul uh, many people talk about within theological discourse is a sort of a vitality. The sacred and profane, which we've been talking about. Sentience and non-sentience. I think it's important to quote black religious scholar J. Kevin Carter here, since he couldn't come, I'll quote him. Quote, matter is a gathering space in the sense of an otherwise cosmology of a vitalistic being. Not ontology or static state but on the gerund being, being as verb, as the eventfulness of existence as such. The vitalism of matter. Matter spawns worlds that constantly begin again, constantly enfleshes itself as entangled, unpredictable multiplicities, end quote. I infer from Carter that because matter is dynamic, kinetic, unpredictable, and marked by entangled otherness, it is a source of vitalism and aliveness. I want to be clear not to be confused with the moral and ethical category of life. Um, within religious and theological discourse, the moral category of life is often deployed in a way that tries to uh, secure a unity of meaning in terms of experience. And again, some of those transcendent triumphalist narratives uh, are, are sort of repeated and replayed. Um, and so that's not what I'm talking about, but matter again um, as a source of vitalism and aliveness, which can ground, I think, how we think of existence in all of its dynamic, unpredictable, and relational dimensions. This dynamic view of materiality also emphasizes the liminality of existence and existing between death and aliveness, which refuses to reduce existence and its multiple meanings simply to death. My theorization of black religion and theologies included in that substantively, substantively focuses on why materiality is essential to understanding social formations such as blackness as existing between both death and aliveness an abjection, but something more and in excess to such abjection. Black feminist studies scholars like Zakia Iman Jackson, Sadia Hartman, Christina Sharp, uh, and Alexis Pauline Gums offer, I think, black religious theological discourses, and I work uh, a lot at the site of black feminist and womanist theological and religious discourses, but I think that these particular feminists in black studies, black feminists, offer the work that I'm doing, the area that I'm working in, a way to think and talk about black female sexuality and as an analytic, that is, within, against, and beyond identitarian, identitarian politics, offering instead a conversation on how black female sexuality is deployed in securing the material conditions of an anti-black world 
And what this means in not only understanding blackness as abjection, but also discerning possibilities for disruption, defiance, and I would argue care and joy, not singularly determined by such, such abjection. So I'm drawn to Zakia Jackson's observation on the turn in black feminist discourses towards mathematics and physics metaphors in theorizing blackness, its perils and promises. So for instance, and this is uh, sort of a, to, to the conversation that we were having about the sublime, it sort of anticipated what I'm, I would be talking about. For instance, Jackson's discussion of the sublime in Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant is important in examining how black female sexuality conceptualized as demonic ground or abject ground offered the conditions for the possibility and guarantee of the sublime in the modern anti-black world. In Kant and Burke's, Burke's aesthetic accounts of the sublime, the black woman is not simply a figure of personhood, that is, sort of identity or individuality, but a historical a priori. The black woman is not then a material referent of personhood, but to quote Jackson, but quote, a signifier of ultimate chaos and disorder, end quote. A chaos that had to be contained and civilized through Western aesthetic sublime accounts of truth, beauty, and order. This black woman compels sublime visions through her inherent terribleness or as a terror-inducing threat. The black woman is associated with darkness, irrationality, and opacity, which both secures and legitimates the terms of order, and that includes, of course, accounts of the sublime, but simultaneously threatens the power and integrity of the racially gendered terms of order, right? So I'm gonna return in a second within Jackson's work to this sort of paradoxical, right, capacity, so to speak, that she's trying to pull out in her work concerning blackness and particularly the black maternal. So for Jackson then, the black, uh, and I'm pronouncing it this way for a reason, the black mater maternal, right? Because again, for Jackson, the black maternal is sort of this theorization between matter, right, and the Latin word uh, mater, the mother. But in some way, she's not really talking about for the black maternal, again, simply the referent, a material referent to the black woman as identity and personhood, but this entire process of blackening, right, that comes with the modern period, the process of black and matter of which, through the processes of ungendering, black female flesh as, as black and matter comes to express the limit, right, of the human. Um, but I probably should notice that, uh, note that even though Jackson is talking about black female flesh as a limit of the human, there's also this kind of simultaneity that's within her work, right, through her idea of ontologized plasticity, right? I mean, the argument is that it's not about inclusion or exclusion that's at stake in anti-blackness, but it's rather about selective incorporation, right? And it's about this way, so it's not just about objection. It's about, the, it's about a kind of endless malleability to black flesh and the way in which it's remade over and over again as uh, as unhuman, subhuman, and so forth, as a way to serve um, the anti-black order. But that in this way, so blackness in its gendered and sexuating dimensions and consequences, right, I think is really important to the conversation of the black maternal. And I think this also gets to a conversation we were having about uh, that underneath that for Jackson is this larger conversation about the black maternal and blackness as sort of um, um, uh, uh, indexing a kind of epistemic non-representability, right? Because of this paradoxical um, latent power that I'll say a bit more of. So it's simply not, blackness is not simply about abjection, but in uh, Jackson's words, an abject generativity. 
What I find compelling about Jackson's discussion here is how the black maternal as ultimate chaos is not simply a, I quote, unquote, a subjectivity or identity standpoint, but a sublime function or the sublime anti-black sexuating conditions of discursivity itself, end quote. The black maternal is a demonic ground or situational ontological ground that an anti-black model of being is given material existence. While much of black feminism, and I will say even for myself, I can uh, sort of hold myself complicit in this and some of my previous work uh, in black womanism as well, um, um, while much of black feminism has, and, and black womanism, I would argue for this matter, has been preoccupied with representation um, uh, because of how it does perform in the discursive material terrains of anti-blackness and empire, and I think there are actual arguments for that. We can talk about that. There, there are actual good arguments for that. I also agree with Jackson that the black maternal is not merely a standpoint, right? Like cis, trans, so forth. Um, but it is the foreclosure of standpoint. It is that which is denied standpoint because it functions as the ground of immeasurable terror, right? Going back to these accounts of the sublime, these aesthetic accounts that um, help to sort of uh, fashion and concretize Western ontological projects in the West. It is the, um, it is the, uh, the ground of immeasurable terror, that which needs to be civilized, tamed, and overcome. But this ground of immeasurable terror is simultaneously the conditions that can threaten and disrupt the anti-black terms of order, right? This is Jackson's uh, argument. So then for me, this entire discussion opens another moment in the theorization, theorizations of anti-blackness. The black woman or black maternal as abjection is more like, again, to use Jackson's word, an abject generativity in the sense that it evokes a paradoxical latent power of capacity to potentially activate a threat to visions of totality that might be described as, as right. So I'm also thinking here of Charles Long's work, right? Um, the category of the opaque, that the category of, of opacity, it can threaten visions, uh, uh, to, uh, it, can threat, it can be a threat rather to visions of totality. Totality being about orders of uh, coherency or transparency, right, and, and, and so forth. So returning to black feminists who employ physics metaphors in thinking blackness or the black maternal as abject generativity within an anti-black world, one of my questions, I wonder how this approach helps us develop reading strategies and critical practices that allow us to theorize blackness as well as of course the black maternal as that which might resist and exceed anti-black representation in, under, and despite black death. So I want to be clear with this question. It's not just about how we think about the terms of anti-blackness and what's possible. It, it, you know, it's anti, so in, in terms of anti-blackness, is it only abjection, right, ultimately? Blackness only abjection. Can we exceed and, and therefore resist you know, the representations associated with it? But I also think it's fundamentally a question of language um, as well that attends to this, um, and that is uh, if we take seriously um, our analytic frameworks as sort of representations and interpretations of the world that sort of mediate reality, always imperfectly, right? Um, then how do we think then about our representational and interpretive systems, right? The possibilities of those systems, but also the limitations of those systems. So I want to be clear, this is not just about the content of anti-blackness. I'm asking a, an epistemological question about the form of knowledge. For instance, 
Uh, how does black feminist Catherine McKittrick's usage of mathematics and physics metaphors help us understand blackness as something grounded and but not necessarily reducible to the Western metaphysical and political, political ontological terms of anti-blackness, blackness as something marked by opacity, paradox, indeterminacy, and incalculability. I'd also like to continue having the discussion between the relationship of anti-blackness and blackness um, as well. That's where that question comes from. So I think Jackson and McKittrick resonate with Christina Sharp, as Sharp wants to insist that, quote, even as we experience experience, recognize, and live subjection, we did not simply or only live in subject, subjection and as the subjected, end quote. In the midst of death, Sharp wants to, quote, attend to the physical, social, or figurative death and also tend to the largeness that is black social living, or in the words of Kevin, uh, in, that's end quote, or in the words of Kevin Kwashi, black aliveness, or I'm thinking about Catherine McKittrick's language of black livingness, right? Um, and, and I take it that all of these concepts are sort of, this, these are, this argument of sort of black aliveness insisted from death. So even, again, the relationship between death and aliveness, are these mutually ex exclusive? Should we understand these as polarities? I mean, again, within Western metaphysical constructions, this is precisely how these categories have been used. And you know, how, how do we reimagine and rethink these categories, especially based on the challenges and conversations that these black feminists are having? I see Sadia Hartman's Wayward Lives as an enriching testament to this precise insistence. Blackness, blackness as abjection, yet aliveness that is marked by rich social living, that is structured by and yet may elide and exceed anti-black orders and its forms of social death. I am currently thinking with these black feminists as I think they're theorizing um, of anti-blackness and blackness as not necessarily coterminous opens to questions of possibility and care. I am after an articulation of a, a black feminist study of religion, and this is not my language here. This is the call that um, Dr. Tamora, a black feminist and black cultural theorist, Dr. T uh, Tamora Lomax uh, issues in her uh, book, um, Jezebel. Um, so I, I'm after sort of crafting again a black feminist um, study of religion, which in, uh, for me would include a conversation of theology, that thinks of blacks' existence as a wrestling with and between abjection and care and abject, abject generativity, to go back to Jackson's words, that acknowledges social death as well as, so it does acknowledge social death, but as well as possibilities of care in other worlds, of which black religion might serve as a source in such a critical reading practice and strategy. Again, for me, part of any possibilities of care in the midst and, in the midst and despite black death is rethinking black existence away from religious ontologies and toward ap apocalyptically oriented apophatic cosmologies. And when I say apophatic cosmologies, I am speaking about an interpretation of cosmos as not pointing to a singular world in terms of a singular meaning such, such as abjection in an anti-black world, but interpretations of multiple cosmoses marked by a Tahomic depth. So, so I want to be clear when I, again, cosmological cosmos, one could say, although I think there are critical distinctions be between the language of world and cosmos, 
Um, there's some continuity, but discontinuity. But when I speak of cosmos right here, I, I really am talking about, if you want to talk about world, worldling, right? And hopefully, we, again, we can have further conversation uh, about that. But that this worldling or multiple cosmos is marked by a Tahomic depth. And this is um, um, borrowed, cited uh, from Catherine Keller's work. Um, Tahom in Hebrew is a word for chaos, darkness, and incalculability in our material world. That, and I quote her here, that quote, manifests as a bottomless covered by the surface level skirt of the ocean, beneath which are currents of rhythms vibrating with animating, entangled, fleshly, incarnating spirit depth, end quote. Here, matter, that is when I say matter again, I'm, I'm, al I'm already talking about aliveness and existence, re rejecting ontological hierarchies that would sort of divorce matter from spirit. It is about mystery, opacity, ineffability of spirit and spirit, but it does have at the center of it a kind of grotesque sensibility, right? And I can say more about that in the, com in the conversation. So this is not a kind of romanticized uh, understanding of, of, of cosmos as such, um, and, and even of worldling, right? It has a grotesque sensibility at the center of it. Um, matter is never about stasis. It is always unfolding in flux, constantly undergoing change, marked between death and aliveness, presence and absence, imbued with spirit. As such, blackness in all of its material and ideational dimensions is also an issue of physics, of the materiality of the world, and the meanings we shape from matter, again, the imaginations of matter. This statement offers a broader cosmological vision, not ontological, of the world, of existence, and of possibilities in the midst and despite anti-blackness. Through black religious theorizing, I desire to develop an experiment with apophatic cosmologies marked by spirit. Again, that tahomic depth, which might enable a reimagining and inhabiting of relations of care and joy. Right now, I am writing about an idea of black apocalypticism that grounds notions of care and joy not beholden to the state in the way that Dr. Joy James rightly names as problematic in her essay on womb theory and the captive maternal. I focus on the apocalyptic at the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 uh, and their material, re material religious rituals uh, their religious rituals and material practices. And I tried to read with, against, and beyond Azusa. So I'm reading with Azusa in terms of centering their material practices, but I'm also reading Azusa against Azusa. Okay, I want to be clear about that. Um, um, in discussing how these rituals often reinforce the abject terms of an anti-black order, yet simultaneously challenge or at least attempt to challenge the ontotheological ideas that funded the anti-black capitalist order at the start of the 20th century. The apocalypticism of Azusa attempts to register the end of the ontotheological anti-black capitalist world, but simultaneously is about, about unveiling something more, an apophatic dimension of black existence that speaks to possibility, the capacity for a world of care, joy, and wonder within and yet beyond the present order. For Azusa, then, blackness is not just about the problem of abjection, although it is the problem of abjection, but not solely, but it's also already in excess to the anti-black regulating uh, order of, mean, of, of meanings. Through their religious rituals, say, of tearing and their material practices, Azusa enacted otherwise worlds of wonder, joy, and mystery, a way of being alive and insisting care in community despite an anti-black order. 
When turning to Azusa, there is a mystery and opacity to blackness that might allow us to think in the gap between abjection and excess, a space that can signal the more, to use Charles, Long, Charles Long's words, the more being about aliveness and worldly. Finally, by employing Azusa's practice of the apocalyptic in and through their rituals, I desire to raise how apophaticism has consequences for how we talk about black subjectivity, agency, and desire. Moten, Gums, and Carter have written about blackness as a kind of mystical ground that can function as a pathogen that has potential to end the anti-black world because blackness itself refuses or resists ontology. Speaking of blackness as mystical ground, Moten attempts, and I want to quote Warren here um, because I think that Warren uh, uh, concisely in one sentence gets that um, in the um, a phenomenology of spirit that he writes sort of interpreting Moten. Uh, that uh, speaking of blackness as mystical ground, Moton attempts to quote, and quoting Warren, quote, to capture a certain majesty, terror, and wonder of blackness. Not that blackness does not present as objection and terror in, an, in an anti-black world, but that blackness simultaneously exceeds naked abjection, end quote. Again, as Jackson and McKittrick remind, reminds us, blackness as a kind of abject generativity. As a, as a black feminist and womanist religious scholar, I want to make room for the social and all of its plenitude of meanings. One question that I do have is, um, how do we think about, um, how do we uh, distinctly think about some of the categories I feel that have been floating with respect to talking about anti-blackness and blackness, the category of the social, the category of the political, the category of the economic. I, I, so I, I'm curious, it seems to me oftentimes in discussions that the political is collapsed into the social, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm just sort of wondering how do we get at some critical distinctions among these categories while showing uh, at the same time sort of the way that these categories are mutually constituted at, at the same time. Um, so I want to make room for the social and all of its plenitude of meanings, and I understand the social to be a complex ground that might refuse complete enclosure by forces of anti-blackness. That is, it's anti-blackness's uh, political uh, ontology and libidinal economy, allowing for complex, even ambiguous signs of black agency and desire not completely colonized by anti-blackness. And so, as you can see, another question that I'm raising is sort of, how do we talk about agency, right? Um, um, uh, I've been deeply influenced by the hermeneutical phenomenology of law, right? Um, and thinking about from a phenomenological approach how to think about agency that sort of is responding to, within Western philosophy, a kind of Kantian approach where you have idealized uh, um, abstract uh, subjects, sort of idealized uh, account of subjectivity, uh, already imbued with capacities that um, sort of have pre-described pre, pre ways of thinking about moral judgment, moral deliberation, and moral action. So I, I, again, I, I'm, I, I think, you know, thinking about what do we mean when we talk about agency? How does method matter? Why does method matter between religious studies and, and black studies on this count? For me, a black religious apophatic as seen through Azusa's rituals is a reading strategy or interpretive framework for discussing mystical, unpredictable, even excessive realities that move within and yet escape and elide our systems of representations in an anti-black world and its gender-sexuating conditions and consequences. And this apophaticism, for me, is a spirit grammar, right? And I think that, for me, it is fundamentally a re it's religious in shape that seeks to describe black existence within, against, and despite anti-blackness and its Western metaphysical significations, opening, a, opening up opportunities for alternate, perhaps, apophatic cosmologies 
through which to track what I take to be the largeness and richness of black social living that transgresses, refuses, and may even subvert our anti-black climate. Thank you. Thank you so much. I love fire, particularly at my age, right? Because it's very warming. Um, thank you to Ahmad Green Hayes, Sue Min Kim, and for everyone who made this opportunity to be in dialogue together possible. And of course, um, just the richness of the thought from the contributors earlier today, um, folks here. And I'm going to do a combination of, of a talk read. I'm not gonna get up, so. Oh, can you hear me? Okay. Bring it closer. Okay, thanks. So sorry about that. So the thank yous again that might have been missed. Um, that was really rich. I, I wanna make connections to what have, what's been said and also point a bit to what's following. So first I want to think about black feminisms and the captive maternal in terms of agency. So there's a lot that you said to just set the table, right? And I want to see um, what I can bring to it. There are some parts though that I want to put in place, not that it's going to be clearly aligned, but there are concepts that I think are indispensable for where I'm going. And where I'm going is actually to agency but I'm also trying to point out our fear for agency if it veers towards the revolutionary. So if, you know, as Jason Stanley at Yale has said, as Robin Kelly has said as a historian, Stanley as a philosopher, as Bernie Sanders has said um, as a senator, you know, and talking about different parts of the world, global politics and national politics, that we are moving towards a proto-fascist phase that I'm very curious about how religion stands up to that and can articulate the reality. And so I appreciate so much about the material world. Um, my personal opinion is that our language is failing and that it, not so much that does not have capacity, it does not have desire. And so in the absence of a desire to articulate the material realities and our inability to have a godlike wand to fix things and to push white nationalists, mass shooters, um, there's a whole list, you've already got the list, um, back, then I think then what we have to decide is what will be our emotional, intellectual, religious, theological, spiritual, relationship to revolutionaries. And I actually believe that we fear them. So that, I mean, we're basically screwed. All right, so black feminisms and captive maternal agency. So a bit of the puzzle pieces I wanted to line out and put out. One is about epistemology from the Canadian Jesuit priest, Bernard Lonergan, his 1957 study, which I had to learn in grad school decades ago, inside a study of human understanding, where he, um, discusses epistemology as a three-part process. There's experience, judgment, and reflection. But I find that insufficient. So then I need another aspect um, beyond Jesuits, right, in terms of the contribution to intellectual capacity. And then that's when I go to the ancestors. 
And, and ancestors came up earlier today. I actually see them as part of religion. So whether you're in Yoruba, Santeria, because mostly we're just talking Christian here, I'm assuming, right? No? I know you shook your head no. And maybe I projected that from having been in Catholic school for way too long and in seminary. But when I hear us speak collectively, I don't hear the African religions appear clearly. So that's what I'm saying. I may be mishearing, but I'm just, I feel like there's a gap here or void. So when I go to Ida B. Wells, what I find so striking about Wells, right, um, 1892, anti-lynching crusader, a, mo a mother herself, a godmother, who's the father of two-year-old Marine, um, is Lynch, Marine Moss, the father was Thomas Moss. That becomes a catalyst that pushes her towards spirit in which she realizes through physical struggle that what she had inherited or internalized in terms of anti-blackness, that black males are serial rapists, that they only desire white women as prey, et cetera, et cetera, that it's with the loss of family. And I see, and you can fast forward, this is what we've been doing for the last number of years. Samaria Rice, right, loses the 12-year-old Tamir Rice. Sabrina Fulton loses Trayvon. It's the, the public spectacle of lynching and murder of black kin that alters the mother. And when I argue about, or it doesn't have to be an argument, when I talk about the captive maternal, I'm seeing this as a non-gendered formation. But for Ida B. Wells, the catalyst is the trauma, the grief, the despair, and then what follows is rage. And I often don't hear us talk about rage. So I know revolutionaries who did years, you know, Panthers, Black Liberation Army, in prison or who managed to stay out, I hear from the activists on the ground who are radicals or who have fought in revolutionary, struggle, revolutionary struggles, I hear the articulation of rage more clearly than I hear it from academics. And I don't know if we're allowed to rage, but I mean, it's a real emotional skill. And so I would think that we would be able to comprehend and to speak about it. So what does Wells bring to Bernard Lonergan? The fourth component, which is action. And action is a form of militancy. So remember, Lonergan starts with experience, right? Reflection and judgment. When action appears as a fourth, you have new experience. So I want to argue, present the possibility that in the absence of action in a militant zone or a zone of resistance, your experiences are reductive and repetitive. Because it's only when Ida would be well said, wait, you just lynched some people who were just opening a grocery store that the white competitor wanted to close. And so that becomes the transformation of person who goes to Britain, who's able to organize with white British women to have a boycott to cripple the economy of Memphis, Tennessee. And of course, they put a bounty on her head, so she's going to end up in Chicago. But there's a way in which, despite or maybe because of the suffering, that spirit appears. And so epistemology shifts. And the way in which it shifts is not without a cost. So let me go to this third part, and then I'll do a little reading, and I'll stop. So I talked about epistemology as we learn about it in the academy. Then I talked about the development of epistemology to reflect the material world as we learn about it through our ancestors. You can add 
Malcolm X, Ella Baker, Nat Turner, David Walker. I mean, we have a long list. We also have a long list in the 20th century of assassinated leadership, and that is global. Patrice Lumumba, Amilcar Cabral, right? And this is tied to where we live in this moment, where Wells was living her version in another century. We're actually in an imperial zone. So what does it look like to have something, an entity recognized as having imperial status around the globe and to also recognize that it has been a zone of terror, not obviously against people of African descent, but also indigenous people. So the very zone is built on genocide. But if we lack a language, and also the language is being banned because the books are being banned and DeSantis is very active and will probably live forever, you know, in the terms of closing down important discussions. So from the ancestors zone, I go to the contemporary zone and then I'll, I'll start talking a bit about the book, New Bones Abolition, Captive Maternal Agency in the Afterlife of Erica Garner, which will be out next week. The third zone I'm kind of puzzled by, um, this is the zone of revolutionary politics. And I wonder if religion actually avoids revolutionary politics because it becomes a safety route, but also the repetition and the promise of salvation. Because I think if you actually get close to revolutionary politics, the whole notion of salvation gets very muddied. You know, I appreciate um, Cecilio's work and those images like of what the demonic is, but I, and I'm not saying but is against, but I would add, probably you already said it. For me, the hyper demonic or the, you know, demon on steroids would be the black revolutionary because there's nothing more lethal to the imagination, to the psyche, to the emotional drive of an empire built on captivity and white nationalism than a black insurgent. So the black insurgent is the uber devil or the ultimate devil. And I wonder how much we've internalized this culture that we also see the black revolutionary as demonic. So when I think about the way we've been talking about religion or, or that I've been trained to talk about it, right? Um, going to chapel on military bases where I grew up, um, being taught by Jesuits, going to seminary to learn from luminary black liberation um, theologians. There's an aspect of the revolutionary that never appeared in any of those zones. And so when I think of Malcolm X, El-Haj Malik, El-Shabazz, or others, I see where the religion of Islam comes in, but seems to be rarely spoken about or addressed. So if you notice my theme, it's like there are these absences or voids, and then we're supposed to be talking about reality, but there are these like gaps in it. So I, half the time, I don't know what we're talking about, because there are these large gaps. So an example, like a couple of months ago, I was at a conference at Yale. It was called Imagination and Incarceration. And people on the panel were saying, like, yeah, there's too much, um, the praying that, you know, the Christianity is, can be like a drug, right? The promissory note, you'll be, you know, rehabilitated. Don't fight too hard in prison, just do your time and get out. And then I was thinking about prayer, though, coming from Muslims who were revolutionaries and political prisoners. And I realized that there was no language. And I, was, I started saying from the panel, wait, 
Who's Asada Shakur? That's a Muslim name. Who's Daruba bin Mohan? That's a Muslim name. Safiya Bukhari, Muslim name. Stokely Carmichael became Kwame Turi. H. Rep. Brown became Jalil Alamin. And when you talk to folks, and there's their critiques, I can't, you know, I know some Afro-pessimists who will criticize people for embracing Islam, and they will say that they lost their revolutionary edge when they went toward the religion. I, I can't make that call on anybody, right? But when I think about it, I feel like the spirit that you called out, that the spirit is understood by revolutionaries. And for whatever reason, a sizable number of people who were in the Black Panther Party, who were hunted by COINTELPRO, who understood when Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were assassinated December 4th, 1969, after they'd been dragged by a joint venture between the Chicago Police Department and the FBI, and nobody did a day in prison for those murders, right? That if they moved towards religion and spirituality, it was a stabilizer. And their understanding of being stabilized was to secure themselves so that they could go further into revolutionary struggle. They weren't retreating by going into religion. They were going further. They actually went into the underground, right? And again, I don't have any language to explain that. And when I talk to people who, were, who they would be considered Panther vets, they're not gonna share the language with me for me to comprehend it. But then I wonder how we understand phenomena when nobody's talking to us and we're not talking about it. All right, so moving um, on quickly. And again, this is my patchwork quilt. My grandmothers did patchwork quilts, so I could do it here too. Um, Ida B. Wells, I said, brings a fourth component. She's not the first, but she does set a standard that is followed. I would never consider Ida B. Wells a revolutionary. And so again, the revolu even though she believed in armed self-defense, had a pistol in her handbag, when they thought she was a man, they were saying, we're gonna castrate you and just stake you out in the road, because they couldn't conceive that a black woman would have that level of militancy. But there is also the black bourgeoisie that shunned her. W.B. Du Bois, um, basically in the founding of the NAACP, which Mary White Ovington, a white philanthropist, like, you know that all of our movements are paid for by wealthy philanthropists now, right? Um, they shunned and pushed Ida B. Wells out of the NAACP because they found her too militant, because she was so close to the ground. So you kind of get what you paid for, or you get what people purchase. Right? And so that actually is a cycle that goes through generations. Now, how we would break that, I'm not, obviously, I'm not a revolutionary. I'm not claiming to know how they do stuff or that I would do stuff. But I think if we could articulate, it would be helpful. All right, so quickly a little bit, I think I've got about 10 minutes or less. I wanna go to the first chapter of the book. Um, it's titled, Black Feminists Can Be Captive Maternals, But It's Complicated. Feminism has no gender. To be a feminist is to advocate for equal rights and equity and resources for women and men. This, and non-binary, this would or should include trans women and non-binary people. If black people lack equal rights and equity with bourgeois whites, like nobody's trying to be like poor white people, right? That's not, so even though we're talking around class and race, I kind of, look where we are. I think in certain settings, 
um, we may not clearly scrutinize our standing and our proximity to wealth and power. So, if black people lack equal rights and equity with bourgeois whites and are not considered to actually be human and suffer disproportionate violence, severed natality, exploitation and incarceration administered through the state and vigilante police forces, then this discussion is about more than gender. It is about empire and colonialism, the ungendered and queered black. The captive maternal as extension companion or alternative to black feminisms is not inherently antagonistic to radical centrist liberal black feminisms. Yet unlike the majority of black feminisms, the captive maternal is positioned as an antagonist to the imperial state. Any forms of state feminisms that promoted black feminisms, from Hillary Clinton to Gloria Steinem, would also have to be critiqued in order to gain greater clarity. And I want to just be very clear about this moment, at least my relationship to black feminisms. Because um, years ago, I did anthologies. I edited the Angela Davis Reader, so on and so forth. I believe that the majority of black feminism today is an expression of state feminism. And if you have state feminism, you're going to get empire, because that's what they pay for. And so even if you tracked it back in decades, if Gloria Steinem, knowing that she had worked for the CIA several years earlier, if the people defending, you know, the Angela Davis Defense Committee hired Gloria Steinem to head the fundraising committee for Angela Davis, they knew who they were hiring. Because the point is to align with the state in order to be protected from state violence. If revolutionaries refuse that alignment, then you will have to abandon them. You can't be in two houses at the same time, right? And so the captive maternal, it took me years to kind of get to it. And this is when I was talking about how does despair work? Because when you work with vulnerable populations and you know you can't save them, that does open the door to depression on a regular basis, right? But then maybe we demand too much of ourselves. Or maybe we can't adjust to the fear. I don't know how Ida B. Wells did what she did in the 1800s, and it was the 1800s. So this is a 21st century, so I feel like she should cope better, right? Because I'm doing less, and it is the 21st century, and I have a, jo a job, like, basically with a large corporation, like other people. But there is a desire, maybe. Okay, I'm freelancing right now, I'm not reading. There is a desire. I wonder if there's a desire, make it a question, that we want to be safe more than we want to be free. And if that's the case, we agree to abandon the revolutionaries. And if that's the case, you have nothing to stop the proto-fascists, except to go into a fortress. So mine is Williams, yours will be Harvard. I mean, figure out which way you want to go. But it's only in a fortress where they have private security that other kind of police can't just roll up on you, right? And so I have absolutely no answers, but I'll tell you what I tried to do in the book. So I'll go to that now. See, you just told me to, oh, it's up there. Okay, I wanna, I wanna focus on the action. All the images in the book focus on the action. So this is what the, the Black Student Union at Williams College that produced some really brilliant people. Some of them are in this room. Um, a couple of years ago, I think after 
you graduated, right? <laughs> Just be truthful. They had a speaker for Black History Month and they bailed, so I was like their replacement. So I had found out that Erica Gardner had transitioned four months after she gave birth to a little boy that was named, named Eric Garner. So remember 2014? First it was Erica, Eric Garner being choked out by NYPD, Daniel Pantela, not by himself but others, in Staten Island. Then there was Michael Brown, I know people who went to Ferguson, who was shot and um, left in the street for four hours. And then there was Tamir Rice, who was playing with maybe a toy plastic gun or playing with nothing else, but, or nothing at all, but sitting in a pavilion and cop car speeds up and he's shot in seconds. And when his teenage daughter comes out of, the, his sister rather, comes out of a recreation room to try to give him aid, the police tackle her, shackled her, and put her in the back of the police car, and the 12-year-old bleeds out, right? So Erica Garner becomes a figure I wouldn't say I'm haunted by, I consider her an ancestor. Ancestors always sometimes are reminding you or speaking to you, but she becomes this figure that has no capacity to compromise. So she's not gonna be like the Panther, she's not gonna go into revolutionary underground, she's not gonna offer armed protection, she's not gonna do food, you know, breakfast programs that'll be like trash by police or something like that. From the space of kinship as a maternal, as a mother herself, she's gonna address the dishonor and the death of her father. And in the process of doing so, this movement is developed in New York City. And it spreads beyond. She'll go to Baltimore when Freddie Gray is killed by police because they sever his spine, right? and a police squad car, what they called a van, a rough ride. And President Obama will make a statement, and first he'll talk about the thugs, because people are protesting, and then he has to walk it back, because the grief and the terror are real. And how people respond to grief and terror in a state that has marked whole populations for disposability, you know, if you're gonna align with the state, and that's what you get with your first black imperial president, you will have the rhetoric of compassion, but you will not have any change in the material conditions of terror, right? So I was sort of fascinated by her, and I did not realize that she had died. And then I was mortified, because I'd gone to a few you know, protests, but I'm commuting back and forth to college. You're raising kids, you're trying to find schools for them. And so there's a way that you're distracted or I'm distracted from politics itself. So when the students ask me to talk about something or anything that looks black in Black History Month, I say it's gonna be Erica Garner. And what I did from her death in December 2017, if I was asked to speak anywhere, I only spoke about Erica Garner. But it was the students who made this possibility and made the poster where they imposed her over the ancestors, right? And that's what I see, like despite the chaos, despite the terror, we have a flow that has never stopped. There's been, you know, barriers or blocks or dams, but we've always gone, the water's gone over, it's gone under, but we have continued to re-event, re-imagine, reconstitute our resistance. 
The next slide is um, from Atlanta, and actually the date is wrong. It's 2005. That little girl is, is now graduated from college. But she was trained to be a captive maternal. So remember, captive maternal has no gender and it has no age. And she's feeding based on the training from her community and her family. She's feeding community, but they also understand the sharing of care, because you talked a lot about care, as also being a political act and tied to FTP. So FTP stands for feed the people, feed the people, and then you already know the police, right? All right. This is from Trey, hi. This is from an invitation from Trey to go to Texas for anti-death penalty organizing. And these are folks who participated in the panels that we were doing, right, in Houston. And if you can look on the little marker in the garden, this is based on a community house, open to everybody in um, black Houston, working class, impoverished, low income. It would have Sundiata Koli. So in their garden, there are the names, and again, this is a Muslim name, of the political prisoners. And Akoli was caged for about 40 years. I think he's still alive. Mutulu Shakur uh, died a couple of weeks ago or a month ago. Um, and he, every black political prisoner in the US uh, has been held till most of the majority, not everyone, for decades and only released shortly before their death. All right, and then this is the last one I will show, which is the resistance, and then I'll wrap up. We do have a history, we do have a, a lineage, so we have a legacy. And what we can remember, or what we refuse to remember, whatever our false memories might be based on fear or wanting to fit and to be safe, you can't disappear who we are, what has been constituted in terms of a formation of people in an anti-black world. I believe we are a mutation. But if we are a mutation, then we still have agency. And whether or not you can see all those red dots, and whether or not 500 years is comprehensive, it would, you know, for Afro-pessimists, they say you also have to deal with Arab enslavement, so it's gonna be a millennia plus. Um, we have been devastated, but we have not completely died. And we will always have revolutionaries. Whether or not we want them, whether or not we like them, whether or not we will acknowledge them, whether or not we will develop a language that articulates their love and loss and their sacrifice and agape, they will never leave us. And if that's all we get, that's good enough for me. Good afternoon. Uh, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you to um, Interim Dean Holland and uh, my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Ahmad Green-Hayes for the invitation. Uh, in the program, it says that my talk is entitled Black Religion's Impossible Work. That's not right. That's my fault. Um, I've changed the name uh, to um, Black Mysticism's Impossible Work. Um, and I will just 
jump right in. Language, its inadequacy, is such that when spoken at a limit, when spoken out of a void, when operationalized to describe what is born in desolation, language, in its inadequacy and under these circumstances, is bound to bind unlikely companions whose station is not just shared bondage, but the description of that experience and perhaps even its unraveling. So this afternoon, I would like to consider the word impossibility, particularly the way that it is fashioned into a concept across both black studies and Christian theology. In both black studies and Christian theology, impossibility retains its literal sense with regard to various kinds of limits or unoccurable things or events, things or events that cannot occur. Whether that be certain limits of political capacity or certain limits to the presence of God, the literal impossibility of becoming a proper political subject with rights to be respected and protected, and the impossibility of becoming properly enmeshed in God's glory as an infleshed creature. Impossibility in both of these disciplines rever refers to a limit case or limit experience whereby the sentient creature at the core of study, blackened humanity and the religious devotee respectively, stand in for and stand before the incessant threat of death and the dissolution of reality itself. Which is to say that blackened humanity and the religious devotee, by virtue of a kind of shared bondage to disinheritance from the proper, are given over to a so-called life lived in the void that we call impossibility. A no man's land, a nowhere zone, from which deliverance has mostly proven to be something that will not, some might say cannot, I would, occur according to the terms of order that determine the proper and so through which the disinheritance was inaugurated. However, both black studies and Christian theology have variously engaged these impossible limit experiences and we've got a lot of this today, as counterintuitively generative. Further, both black studies and Christian theology in naming that counterintuitive generativity play with some form of the concept, quote, impossible possibility. The possibility of impossibility emerges as an existential and cultural excess that though refused by the myths of Western civilization and its adjudication of normativity and legitimacy, suggests that the void can indeed be a luminous place, experience, all of that, temporality. So throughout, I argue that the meta-theoretical structure through which black studies funnels the play of impossible possibility is blackness. And the meta-theoretical structure through which Christian theology funnels its play of impossible possibility is mysticism. 
Thus, one might read blackness and mysticism as commensurate meta-theoretical structuring principles. However, it is my position that blackness is a play in proximate impossible possibility, and mysticism is a play in ultimate impossible possibility. It's the difference between one whose object of study is culture or politics or history or aesthetics and the other whose object of study is culture or politics or history or aesthetics in relation to a self-conscious relation to um, God. And though the meta-theoretical operations and agendas meet at the point of the breakdown of form as pure duality or the pure duality of form, what I want to argue is that blackness, insofar as it is not reducible to raciality as such, is no good if the breakdown or the eruption or the event that it occasions has no interest in proleptic anticipation whereby blackness exhausts both itself and so the world wherein it has significatory function. So basically what I'm arguing is that blackness as a structuring principle insofar as it is not reducible to raciality um, uh, becomes almost like a purified signifier. And in so much as it becomes this sort of purified or universalizable signifier, I think that it's still too vulnerable to commodification and appropriation. And so like if its operation is to exhaust the world wherein it has any sort of signatory function, then it also has to exhaust its usability. And the point at which this is the anticipation of the event occasioned by blackness it is my contention that such eruption necessarily pours, necessarily pours over into questions of cosmology, which in turn will demand new grammars, new languages, new tongues. Um, and now I'll move on. Next section, blackness and proximate impossibility. Here I want to take up two examples of blackness as structuring principle in black studies that explicitly veer into, at the very least, the linguistic domain of mysticism. As mentioned, Fred, Mot Fred Moten's blackness and nothingness, mysticism in the flesh, and a beautiful interview that Jared Sexton gave uh, with Daniel Barber entitled On Black ne Negativity or the Affirmation of Nothing. The shared theme of nothingness is important here because as I will press later on, sorry, my own understanding of God, God's self, like my own first person experience, if you will, uh, resides in the space of nothingness or the void or the abyssal, something like that. I don't experience or talk about God in um, gendered or anthropomorphic terms that doesn't resonate with me, and I don't think that that's the, that, that is what is being revealed uh, in Scripture. Um, only insofar as it is revealed in the person of Jesus, who in turn, I think, um, inaugurates a spirit of rejection that is really a rejection of the kind of androcentric uh, uh, sociality that we're, that we're all after in terms of, or all attempting to upend. Uh, up um, so I think that, that, that nothingness is, is, is essential here. Um, 
it is like my conception of God. And this is all, there's precedent for this in 20th century theologians like Karl Rahner, uh, for example. There's precedent for this in ancient theologians like uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, right? So this is not really new at all. Um, and so if that's my conception of God, uh, and to get ahead of myself, you might be able to see already my reticence about blackness, which I think of as a proximate impossibility, uh, approximate nothingness with relation to ultimacy, how that slippage into a purified signifier might be a problem, rather than something that participates in the revelation of uh, an ultimate nothingness. Blackness and nothingness, Moton's article, proceeds by way of an overturning of origin and speech as primary modes of meaning making. It is a clarification of so-called black optimism with respect to the protocols and procedures of so-called Afro-pessimism, which Moten argues is, quote, the study of the impossibility that blackness can be loved. Quote, if Afro-pessimism is the study of this impossibility, he writes, then the thinking that I have to offer moves not in that possibility's transcendence, but rather in its exhaustion. Right. So keep that in mind. Moreover, I want to consider me, no, him, sorry. <laughs> Moreover, I want to consider exhaustion as a mode or form or way of life, which is to say sociality, thereby marking a relation whose implications constitute, in my view, a fundamental, this is a major word here, fundamental theoretical um, reason not to believe, as it were, in social death. And this is, this is, this Blackness is going to become the sort of fundamental structuring principle that exhausts impossibility. Uh, so Moton buys the sense in which black people in particular have been relegated to political death, but it is also his sense that that relegation to political death is at once a radical induction into what he calls fugitive sociality which is to say that black social and performative culture, aesthetics, occasions and event, events in the midst of political death that reveal a fundamental capacity of black people um, or impossible possibility. This fundamental capacity exhausts political ontology in and through which black political death is conditioned by displacing binary logic and enacting, quote, of dispossessive intimacy of rubbing, whose, quote, mystic rehearsal is against the rules, or more precisely, is opposed, so beside, uh, to rule and is therefore a concrete social logic often misunderstood as nothing but foolishness, which is, on the other hand, exactly and absolutely what it is. So blackness as um, not sutured to uh, the uh, a fixity of binary logics, not sutured to even speech and language in its meaning-making process. It is an engagement of like um, uh, an unruliness, an unwieldiness. We, you know, some, might, some are saying like an otherwiseness or a waywardness that, um, that he's saying is foolish and perfect. That's what it is. Blackness in exhausting this political ontology by virtue of unruliness with regard to speech, form, tradition, reveals, and I use this term intentionally, something like an universalizable essence of an originality. 
he uses the word, uh, I think sort of playing on, phena I mean, on, on Lacan, he uses the word like essence. Um, but I think what it's actually doing is like a kind of essentializing or universalizing thing of an originality. Blackness is an original and antecedent to political ontology insofar as a certain kind of unruliness of form precedes cultural, scientific, positivistic signification and its reliance on the sedimentation of meaning. So the, the, the construction of language, of sociality, uh, is, is, is properly a construction. And because blackness cannot participate in any real way in, in that meaning-making process, it is antecedent in the way that reality itself is antecedent to this meaning-making that we call Western civilization. There is an important resonance here between the anoriginality that Moten ascribes to blackness as a structuring principle and what Jared Sexton calls non-locality, both of which take on uh, a universalizable tenor. Sexton argues that, quote, a black universality, the universality of blackness, is one that cannot settle or rest or accept what is universal within it. It is a ceaselessly universalizing universality, attentive to, insistent on, and skeptical about every particularity, every local situation through which it is articulated. Now I want to rest here at the skepticism that Sexton raises. And while Moton, I think, would, would happily accept skepticism as internal to blackness as a structuring principle, it's my contention that if Blackness does indeed exhaust the impossibility instantiated by political ontology. If blackness reveals political ontology's fundamental myth or mythology, then it would seem that blackness would become skeptical, who knows how, of its own articulation. Like that would seem to be, need to be like the necessary move. I think that Sexton points towards something like this skepticism, particularly in the way that he locates impossibility. Referencing Franz Fanon's suggestion to introduce invention into existence, Sexton argues that this introduction of, it, of invention in, into existence, quote, is no expressive model of political transformation. Fanon's Ovoir is, in my view, an exploration of the ways that the powers that be are not only upon us, but also, more importantly, within us. Not because the external battle is easy. No, it is nearly impossible. It is just that the internal battle is even harder. It is actually impossible, and no less necessary for that. So from Moton to Sexton, the frame of impossibility, the high pitch of impossibility, changes scales from the aesthetic to the psychic, which almost isn't fair. I mean, the, the psychic is definitely in Moton, sometimes as like uh, as a rhetorical place, sometimes as a very deep critical engagement, but it lands in the aesthetic in a way that I think may obscure the, the, um, the viscosity of, of, of what Sexton is after with a, with a kind of, of psychic placement the impossibility, the impossible thing of, of the powers that be um, being so deeply uh, a part of and, and formational of, of, of even uh, the psyche of the oppressed. But the reason I want to press into Sextonian 
direction is because the interminable internal skepticism that Sexton raises ask that we be dislodged, our minds, our language, from a kind of dreaming innocence or deceptive relationship to purity. And if for Moton, blackness is an almost universalizable concept that signifies an essential impurity and unruliness of form, Sexton will say something like, that which is unruly or improper with regard to all terms, quote, is without term. And when something like blackness functions as the structuring principle par excellence, it is at best peddling in paradox because what it wants is to, quote from Sexton, hold on to itself, which is to say preserve its impropriety. What Sexton calls, quote, all transcendent sense-making, all so many attempts to take control. Just like Moton, Sexton is uninterested in thinking about transcendence as the frame for playing with impossibility. Just like Moton, his language is of a groundlessness, a literal descent rather than a transcendence. For both writers, there is a staunch commitment to the fact of materiality that faces the harmony and the horrors of the break, of the breakdown, of the breaking points of history, of mind, of lives. It's the horrible sort of encounter and, and, and uh, facing of the, of the thing without seeking some kind of security from the dissolution. But Sexton presses into uh, play what Moton more or less stops short of, and that is the eventuality of mysticism when thinking breakdown, descent, and, bla and blackness. And so because the eventuality of mysticism then also the eventuality of cosmology. It's literally, ultimately, how the interview ends. Indeed, about this operation, Sexton says, quote, unlike, Christian unlike the Christian tradition oriented by a transcended body, or transcendent body, a mysticism of the flesh of the earth might be one in which our ruthless and relentless engagement with history from the deep time of geological formation and biological evolution to the long degree of social structures and world systems to the present urgency of crisis and conjuncture pushes us toward the nothing from which we all emerge and to which some remain connected through the nonlinear dynamics of the spatiotemporal topology toward an understanding or at least an appreciation of the pivotal differences between the all and the everything, between the eternal and the forever. But what happens to mysticism of the Christian stripe when its materials, its critical operations, needn't be, quote, oriented by a transcendent body? And further, what happens to the rhetorical mysticism of black studies when its operations in and through blackness find tonal resonance with that which it, with that which it would otherwise disavow? So what I'm saying and what I'm about to say is that it is, I think, a low-hanging fruit, straw man argument to suggest that Christianity in its totality is only ever concerned with the duality between transcendence and immanence, whereby one is like in the world and in the body and in the flesh and one is like somewhere else. Like that's just not how these things work. And so there is a way in which theologians have been reading for centuries, Christian theologians have been reading for centuries, and a transcendence that is not, is not 
uh, how, how do you say, um, uh, attempting escape uh, from reality in some fundamental way. Conclusion, black mysticism and ultimate impossibility. Impossible possibility appears in Christian theology as early as like around 1918, 1920 in Karl Barth's commentary, The Epistle to the Romans, which, and there's a Barth scholar in the room and we were conferring, and it may be the case that impossible possibility, as it appears here, is the first place it appears in post-war modernity until Heidegger, and then of course Derrida, and then of course Black Studies. And so there's a long line of it in critical theory, but it may be the case that it begins here in Christian theology in a particular way. Interestingly enough, Bart touches on a kind of an originality, what he would simply understand though as origin, but how he describes origin is in the same way that Moton and others would describe an original or an originality. Our origin, he says, directs our attention to the time which is beyond time, to the space which has no locality, to impossible possibility, to the gospel of transformation, to the imminent coming of the kingdom of God, to affirmation in negation. I mean, these are basically almost direct quotes from the interview uh, with Jared Sexton. Almost basically direct quotes. It's kind of incredible. To salvation in the world, salvation in the world. We can have a conversation about salvation to acquittal in condemnation, to eternity in time, to life in death, right? So he's, he is perhaps not as creative in, in sort of in developing a, a, a mediating language, but he is attempting to create a mediating language whereby we don't have to think uh, in binaries about what reality is. And Bart was no mystic, at least not self-consciously so, perhaps even uh, he condemns mysticism in a very real way, but the language he develops here is a part of the mystical attitude in Christian thinking. It has been my insinuation that blackness is operationally resonant with mysticism, or what Michel Deschateau terms mystics. Specifically, what I'm after is the misconstrued sense that Christianity, particularly Christian mysticism, is oriented toward a transcendent body. And Deschateaux is instructive. Here's what he says. The mystical body is the intended goal of a journey that moves, a kind of fugitivity, you might say, like all pilgrimage toward a site of disappearance. The production of a body plays an essential role in mystics. What is termed a rejection of the body or the world, ascetic struggle, prophetic rapture, is but the necessary and preliminary elucidation of a historical state of affairs. A historical state of affairs. It constitutes the point of departure for the task of offering a body to the spirit of incarnating discourse giving truth to a space in which to make itself manifest. This, is, this was the work of mystical science at the very beginning of the modern period. 
Insofar as rejection of the body or the world gets elided with transcendence, we see here that Deschartaux isn't talking about some ghostly, out-of-body, immaterial experience. Rather, rejection of the body and the world is a rejection of a particular historical narrative. As Bart also pressed, quote, we stand before an irresistible and all-embracing dissolution of the world of time and things and men before a penetrating and absolute crisis, before the supremacy of negation by which all existence is rolled up. And the narrative that mystical science went about rejecting was the very crisis, the very dissolution that we now call modernity in its individualizing, commodifying thrust. In other words, mystical science and black studies stand at opposite ends of the modern project, using similar tools of grammatical and conceptual aformality to break with the protocols of imperial domination. Mystical science differs from blackness, however, in the sense that it understands self-erasure, egoistic dissolution, the breaking of form, is only viable in light of faith, which is to say that the work of breaking form as it appears externally and to break with form as it is constructed internally is to risk a kind of dissolution that makes no sense if the break isn't with also a certain attachment to the aesthetic histories born of the period of the things that we wish to upend. I think that means blackness, and I think that it means also Christianity, and the beautiful thing about Christian theology, particularly in the 20th century, is its openness to its own dissolution. Its openness to its own dissolution and the dissolution of religion. We see this in Rahner, we see this in Bart, we see this in Cohn, we see this all over the place, that what they're after is not so much uh, the instantiation of a Christian world, but uh, the spirit itself. Uh, that's my time. Thank you to our three speakers for those excellent presentations. Uh, as we, as a reminder, there is a Q&A, there's a QR code inside of the booklet where you can scan it and submit your questions um, and the graduate assistants will uh, bring those forward. But if you are also in the room with a question, you can raise your hand um, and a microphone will be brought in your direction. Um, as that is in process, uh, I do wanna offer perhaps a question to put you all in conversation. Um, something that seems to be somewhat of a tension, I think, um, in all of these uh, presentations um, is on the one hand, a acknowledgement of blackness as uh, negation or abjection. Um, and on the other hand, a perhaps from the side of religious studies and of black religion, um, a uh, falling into the trap of transcendence as the only recourse to make sense of blackness as objection. And I'm curious if we could kind of spend some time thinking about 
this tension, right? Because I think it's actually at the heart of um, several debates in the field. Um, a kind of question I hear from Professor James about, we know about the negation, we know about the objection, and actually perhaps we haven't fully contended with the full magnitude of the negation. Um, actually, because we don't center the revolutionary is what I'm hearing, we don't center the captive maternal. And so a query that I think is very present in James's critique is, you know, how will black religion respond, right? And so beyond kind of a recourse to transcendence, to joy, to care, to wonder, um, how will black religion respond? And so uh, Professor Day's presentation is actually calling us to perhaps tarry with wonder and care a bit more. Um, with the invocation of spirit. And so I'm wondering how spirit is functioning throughout these presentations. Uh, what is spirit? <laughs> um, what do we mean by spirit? Uh, does spirit have a kind of ontological um, <laughs> uh, identity character? Um, I'm curious about the ontotheological in particular, Professor Day, and if you could comment on what a decolonial theology of spirit might offer black studies um, today. And I know that's a really <laughs> big question <laughs> that you're, I'm still writing. That you're writing. <laughs> but perhaps just to hear you kind of think aloud about um, it would be really helpful. And you know, uh, Paul pointing us back to um, what I hear as a kind of uh, thinking about our, the Christian theological inheritances that go unacknowledged uh, in black studies. So actually a call to really go back and to really think about where these terms of order and of categorization, where they come from. Uh, and I'm curious about the call, you know, and perhaps pointing us to mystical science, pointing us to uh, early Christian theology. Um, why should black studies return there? Um, and, and what might we um, gain from that kind of inquiry? And I think the last piece um, for me, I just, I've really been in some ways uh, arrested really by, and I know that's very carceral language, but hey, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> by um, Professor James um, when you said our language is failing. And I'm struck by that because I think um, part of the inspiration for this gathering is what I read as a kind of um, two things. One being a kind of um, willful misreading of uh, of each other, <laughs> and by each other I mean a kind of, uh, for black studies and of religious studies, a, a way in which the two often talk against each other or past each other rather than to each other. Um, and also there's a way in which the kind of um, intellectual history of the field of black religion is not fully uh, taken seriously. So by that I mean if we really go back and think about the uh, canonical thinkers in black religion, 
as being a part of the black campus movement, the black studies movement. I'm thinking, I think often about Cone, who, you know, when he's writing, he says, some of us had to be in the streets, but some of us had to stay in the library um, and record the theology of the streets. And I'm curious about that juxtaposition. And so there's a lot here. I'm just kind of rambling because I think my mind is all over the place, which is a beautiful thing that you all have gifted us with. But if you could just ruminate there for a bit on any of those uh, queries, and I would love to kind of hear you all engage together first, and then we'll open it up for uh, audience engagement. Um, I'll try to be brief. I want to read this from um, Reverend Matthew, who's in um, Atlanta. And he actually, I just wrote an intro to it, but he wrote the letter of concern to black clergy regarding Cop City. So I, I think he has the words that I might not have. This is one paragraph. And he's so steeped in the faith, right? Dear siblings in the faith, I write to you during this Lenten season from my home in Atlanta. I write with a heavy heart, having lost friends to jail under false charges and one to murder, covered up poorly by police. I pray without ceasing for those who are still under arrest, denied bail, deemed a threat to the community for no good reason. I pray that the mother of the slain, Belkis Tehran, a devout Catholic, I pray that she knows who her child truly was, despite the misinformation swirling around their death. Tortuguita was murdered, shot over a dozen times with their hands raised and their legs crossed. May the bullet holes through their palms, holy stigmata, be a reminder that their child was a servant of God. Okay, so in May, I, I went down. I think it was, no, in May, I was in Texas. Yeah, it was May. I don't know when I travel. So this is about the language. I'm not just talking about the academy, right? So met with Black Force protectors. Tortuguita was actually shot 57 times when they were sitting down with their hands raised. And the Black um, woman clergy says that they were meditating their eyes were closed. So they believed in the possibility mm. of peaceful protests and Georgia State troopers riddled. And they said he shot them, but when the autopsy from the family came back, it showed that he was, um, he was sitting and then the bullet that hit one of the troopers in the leg, well, that was, quote, friendly fire. Because they shot so many times, bullets were everywhere, right? So I went down and I met with some folks with, um, Reverend Matt and a young black, I don't know their pronouns, but would be biologically female, right? And so I asked the question about agape, right? Tied to security. And I said, what is your security apparatus? Because the troopers came, the police came, and now everybody's out of the force. And this um, pamphlet right here, if you can see this, this is what they bulldozed out of Wilulani, which was all indigenous land became, before it became a plantation, when they pushed the indigenous out, and then they made it a prison farm, and then it's next to a black neighborhood working class, and this is where they're gonna train police and military tactics, and they're also trained by, they also train this Israeli defense forces. So I asked them, what's your security apparatus? And the young person, the youngest one the 20, in her 20s, she said, I've been to Europe, I've given these tours, I've talked about 
And Cop City is not just here, it's also, it's, it's around the country. It is, it is literally, I, as I said, I grew up on military bases with people who, you know, trained to do assassin stuff. This is literally what domestic policing is, is going towards right now. She said that she had none. And when they asked her in Europe the same question, she had no answer. So the language fails even on the level of the activists in the force and on the streets. Because no one can articulate what it means to be safe and also resist state violence. So then the only safety is to align with the state and to become obedient. And so, you know, I'm not 25, I'm not in the forest, I'm not in trees anymore, but just intergenerationally trying to talk to a younger generation, there's a bit of a void. And then there's, um, in your middle generations, there's a bit of a void. And then in my generation, there's a bit of a void. So I don't see how we talk over or through generations. And I don't see how we grapple with our fear. Like, some people I know are just going to go towards the side of pain, right? The apocalypse. And they know they will not be backed or protected. So I asked them about concentric, like, what about circles? Like, you know, people who don't want to get involved, but they'll help with bail funds. Like, they use terrorist charges against people who were trying to do bail fund. So now everybody's got, not everybody, a number of people were arrested by the FBI with terrorist charges for being environmental protectors. They had no weapons. They harmed no one. But now it's going to be um, like you, you bailed somebody out, or you bought totes, or you bought COVID wipes. Those are all criminal offenses if you're linked to a protest against a state militarized endeavor, right? So what does concentric protections look like? I haven't heard anybody articulate it. But when I talk to people who were in the party years ago, they assumed they were going to die anyway, so they did exactly what they wanted to do in resisting state violence. But the people I hear now don't assume they have to die. They want to live. But there's a segment that thinks they will be abandoned by this, you know, the respectable citizenry who will not stop a militarized endeavor. And so they've agreed not to physical death like the Panthers did, but they've agreed to languish in prison for their right to protest the destruction of environment and destruction of rights. Um, so if you don't mind um, to return to the question of spirit, because um, I'd be curious to hear as well, um, in particular, uh, uh, Joy, how, Dr. James, how you are, um, you said a little bit about how you think about uh, spirit in terms of the ancestors and so forth. Um, but when I'm, and I'm still writing, and I'm still writing my way into clarity precisely about what I mean. But here's my hunch right now that I brought up uh, at the beginning of my talk the need to 
sort of move away from religious ontologies that, uh, and in this case for me, for Christian theology, the ontotheological, right, or a theology of being, an ontology of God. And so I, I think that ontotheology, particularly within the Christian tradition, I'm talking here about historic Western theology, right, it's been fundamentally predicated on an ontology of God. And, and what I mean by an ontology of God is God as being, right? Um, and to speak of God as being is to speak of God fundamentally as having certain kinds of properties and capa capacities that are proper to God, right? So when we, within Christian theology, we talk about certain capacities and traits that are proper to God. We think of doctrines, the doctrine of aseity. God is self-sufficient to God, right? Uh, impassibility. We think of uh, uh, the language of om omniscience, you know, all-knowing, omnipotent all-powerful and so forth. But the point here, and this is part of the conversation that's been going on within political theology and the critique of, of Western political theology, is that the ontology of God um, would in many ways shape more broadly within Christian theology a theology of being, right, that would, um, that would, uh, that would uh, begin to shape well, I shouldn't say begin to shape, it would shape the project of modernity and coloniality. And I mean, I think this is what I love about Sylvia Winter and even to some extent um, uh, Zakia Iman Jackson, and that is they are tracking the religious modalities, right, that come to constitute the project of modernity, the project of coloniality. And at least for Sylvia Winter, what sits at the center of that is a certain ontological understanding, right, of the world. Right, which of course is grounded in this understanding of God that creates a scale of beings, right? This distinction among beings, um, um, and, and, you know, this distinction among beings. So I, I, I believe Cecilia uh, sort of indirectly brought this up in talking about a sort of a cosmological understanding that part of the problem with this distinction of beings, well, we know who and what's on top, and we know what's on the bottom. I'm, I'm talking here in terms of like universally, right, all of creation. And so the point here is that the way at least I'm thinking about spirit is against this backdrop, right? Wanting to critique in some ways this, this backdrop, this language of religious ontology, this language of uh, religious being grounded and predicated upon a kind of conception of God that then secures the category of the human eventually, right? Um, and I should also say this, that it secures the category of the human uh, in terms of, of course, being parasitic on, for example, I'm thinking of like Anselm, I'm thinking of uh, Augustine, it would be the ontological argument of sin, right? Well, in terms of the ontological argument of sin, and this goes actually to iconography as well, visually and philosophically and theologically, who would embody that? It would be black and people, right? And as well as the land, I should say too, the black and land as well as black and people. So when I'm thinking of spirit, I'm trying to push against the way in which in Christian theology, spirit has been indexed to this discussion of God as being. So we think about the Trinity, right? We think about persons. Uh, within, uh, among the Godhead, fundamentally, fundamentally conceptualized as, as being. Um, and I'm trying, I'm, like, I'm trying to think against this in some ways because it has indeed contributed. And I should say this, I'm not the first person. Even though, for example, James Cone's project 
you know, of course is decidedly different than the direction that I'm going, I think it is important to acknowledge that in, um, uh, in taking up some of his earlier Christological work, he refused, even in God of the Oppressed, and talking about a God, doctrine of God, he refused to begin, for example, with the language of the Trinity, right? Um, um, which I take to be this philosophical question of being or ontology that Cone thought was utterly unhelpful for talking about the question of black experience um, and ultimately the, the, the quest for liberation. And the last thing that I will say is, um, so then if that, this is the horizon and this is what I'm trying to critique, what I want to provisionally begin to think about is then spirit as sort of, so, so, I, so when you ask the question, what is spirit? I'm, I feel anxious about framing the question as what is spirit? because it invokes, I feel inevitably, this conversation about being, about identity as such. And so for me, at least from a phenomenological standpoint, I'm wanting to track, like, how do communities thickly describe, right, their, again, this is the phenomenological move, thickly describe their experiences of spirit. And that, to me, that allows the, um, the entrance, at least, of material practices to become the grounding upon which we think, reflect. And, and, and again, it also allows the apophatic to stay front and center, right? Um, because it is, in some ways, spirit um, through the material practices, through how people are describing from many different religious traditions, um, describing it, um, and, and in some ways avoiding, again, this language, uh, this language of being, and thinking about spirit as this dynamic, kinetic, relational process, but this ambivalent and ambiguous process, right? Like, if, if we're not defining it, it's open to corruptibility. It's open to fallibility, it's open, it's open to all these things, but that's what I meant by the, the grotesque sensibility being at the center of how I'm thinking about, um, about the spirit, about the world as such, right? That in some ways, what I mean by grotesque, not just like in a, uh, a, a, a negative sense, but grotesque fundamentally as the unresolved uh, maybe tensions and contradictions from just the ambiguities um, and contradictions that are experienced in the world, right? And we have a tendency to try to want to resolve them. This is about the unity, right? Uh, trying to, trying to um, move towards a unity of experience. But these are unresolved, these are unresolved, all, in, unresolved tensions and all of their grotesqueries. Uh, and so for me at least, I, for me at least, that inches a little closer to keeping spirit as an open category, an apophatic category, but also at least through Azusa, as just one example, thinking about how the spirit announces a kind of apocalyptic energy, right? That at the beginning of the 20th century, you have an early Pentecostal community that through their forms of liturgy and through their um, material practices, they're offering a direct critique to the racial capitalism of the day, right? And thinking about the way in which the spirit moves uh, within their built environment. So I, when I think of materiality, I also think of the built environment as a way of thinking themselves into um, um, their own understanding of what it means to be religious, but what it means to reject the idea of the citizen, the proper subject, political subject, the proper human subject that the state demands from them. Um, you know, so I guess there, I'm answering two questions, um, mostly because I got myself in trouble there at the end saying too much. Uh, first, which is 
what is spirit? How does one talk about spirit? Because I did evoke that at the end of the talk. Um, but the initial question was, you know, you were curious about the call to mystical science and to ancient Christianity. And I think that, you know, my, my answer to that is probably mostly unsatisfying. You know, I'm a bit of an academic scavenger. You know, like, I use what I want to use. And I use what I think works, right? And that's, that's about as, as much as that. You know, because again, my, my commitment to the revelation of God in Christ as revealed in Scripture is, is not at the same time a commitment to Christianity as such, a commitment to institutionality in a final or absolute way. Um, and so, you know, uh, you know the, the wonderful scholar of Virginia Tech, uh, Amoria Shea Armstrong, says, you know, it's the use of Christian material right, to, to events or, or, or work against um, a particular term of orders. Um, I think where, where I, and that's, just, that's been a hugely helpful framing um, from her. I think, you know, a, a place where I depart, though, is that, you know, I don't care if it's read as heretical or orthodox, or I'm not really interested, I'm ambivalent about any sort of... Um, you know, sort of means of being captured by camps or, 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 or terms. So I, that's, I use what I want. And I think that, you know, in, in college I was trained in philosophy and the first thing they teach you in critical thinking is patterns and relations, right? And so I think from that moment on, you know, my sort of sense about how I read the world, how I read, is that there's an almost um, unconscious search for patterns and relations which I think is also related to my call as a priest. Um, but that search for patterns and relations, I think, is as much an, uh, an accident as it is an intention, right? So it just so happens that I'm a theologian who also likes mysticism, who also likes black studies, and can see patterns and relations, and the material works. The difficulty for me, and I think for anyone else, is to say, well, what the hell do we do with the material now, right? And, and that's, that's the fun part. Um, but I'm also a Capricorn, and I like chaos. So <laughs> there's that. Um, and so, okay, so my conception of God, right? And, you know, whether we use God or spirit doesn't really matter to me. But again, it's, it's this idea of void or nothingness, which isn't exactly right. My conception of God, the one I function with, and so spirit, the one I function with as like a, as my daily prayer, um, is God as simultaneity, and that is, and that would be sort of the the all of all of everything happening at once. Like if we had the critical perspective to zoom out um, and see every sort of. Um, 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 uh, what do we call heartbeats? Um, it's not intentional. It's unintentional, but it's another term. No, no, no. It's, it's a process that you don't do on your own. Um, involuntary, right? If we could see the whole host of involuntary processes, activities in the universe, we would see God, God's self. And I think that that has a really interesting, the sort of that formation or that conception has a really interesting, really interesting implications for things like evil. Um, because, for example, that is to say that like in God, so right, Paul says, in God we live, move, and have our being. 
Like in God is the function of both very, very evil, destructive things and also the things that we like, right? Which change from period to period, era to era to time to time. Um, so but what, it, what it suggests is that always already um, sort of evil is being transformed or changed into, it's, it's being consummated, evil and good or however we want to use these terms. All things are being consummated simultaneously at all times. And I think that that simultaneous, interminable consummation is, um, has an affective quality, right? And that's what I call spirit. And it's an unlocatable affective quality. We all experience some aspect of that simultaneity, but we do not have the capacity to pin it down in any sort of definite way. And this is why I, why I really do love the Christian notion of sin, of original sin. Because then what it only ever refers to, in my, in my understanding, is the incapacity to make note of or to experience or to map simultaneity. Which means that at every given moment, the decisions that we make, the things that we do, will be made in an incomplete relation to reality. And that incomplete relation will mean that we will necessarily be in contestation, uh, in conflict, in confrontation, um, violently, uh, 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 violently uh, oriented towards someone or something in the world at all times. And so I think that when I talk about spirit, I'm talking about a simultaneity um, that is always in consummation, always in motion, that has affective quality. And affective quality isn't a strong enough word, but... Um, and that the, the work of ritual, of religious rite, of religious practice, is to train one's mind, body, and soul to be more receptive to the affective quality of simultaneity, to be more receptive to the consummation of all things. And that reception, or the capacity to be more receptive, I think is, uh, is, is what helps develop the desire to place one's life in, to, to take risks with one's life, or something like that. Um, and, and so I, there's a part of me that maybe cheekily, but I think actually like really deep down inside, I believe that in a real sort of ambivalence about religious ritual, religious experience, uh, ancient practices of training the body, mind, and soul to be receptive to the spirit or to this sort of affective simultaneity, this consummation, is a, is a part of this sort of, um, so this sort of devastating lack of commitment to revolutionary processes. And I think it's that reception that makes revolutionary processes possible or something like that. Could you define what is a what is a revolutionary process? Right, so that was sloppy. So, when I'm I'm thinking of I'm thinking about the I'm thinking about the risk, the literal risk of life and limb and resources and acclaim and protection, you know, that, that you were naming throughout as things that people don't choose precisely because right, if they choose to do these things, if they choose to if they choose to sort of um, earnestly work against empire, then, then that means an almost absolute 
dissociation from community and from the possibility of living. And so I think that when we, when we think about revolutionaries who have converted, who, who, whose sense of religiosity has sort of deepened their revolutionary uh, sensibility, I think it has something to do with a life that is lived in complete receptivity to this consummating spirit or this consummating process that some might call spirit or God. We'll turn to the audience. There's a question uh, from Rebecca Wilcox in the back and then we'll go to Dr. Eric Thomas after that. Hi. Um, oh, this is so exciting. Like all of my favorite people at one panel. Okay. So um, I just want to ask um, kind of a two-part question um, for a dialogue that I think is happening between Dr. James and Dr. Day. Um, on the one part, um, Dr. Day, I want, can you give an account for the apocalyptic in light of how you're understanding the way that critical black studies is taking up the concept of anti-blackness and what I mean by that is like, how is the apocalyptic not already status quo for the position of the slave? Which is to say that in thinking of Sadia Hartman's understanding of the afterlife of slavery, right? That the apocalyptic only produces world ending capacity, but it does nothing for the positionality of the slave, right? So the collapse of the world um, does nothing for the fact that the slave is already the dead subject in a world that has now collapsed, right? So I'm. I'm wondering if you could say how the apocalyptic, although responds to the world, the anti-black world, does nothing for the anti-blackness of blackness, um, and how that makes sense for then a kind of um, understanding of an, a kind of religiosity that is happening through a kind of neoliberal order that understands democracy to be um, where protest is permissible within democracy, right? So the anti-social arrangements of Azusa would be still within the ramifications of a social arrangement that allows protest to be democratic. Um, so I'm just wondering how you would respond to that. Um, and then Dr. James, I really wanna to return to your opening statement about how um, it's not that it doesn't have capacity, but rather that it doesn't have desire in relationship to how you theorize the revolutionary. And what I'm interested in as it relates to what you talk about the religiosity of this kind of zone that you can't explain that one goes toward when compromising one's safety for one's death, how that makes sense then for kind of the material examples you gave with Erica Gardner or kind of the movements happening with um, Stop Cop City, which is to say that this revolutionary desire or revolutionary capacity still requires a political subject as opposed to a revolutionary desire that just desires violence on violence's behalf, right? So it is not for a better world or a better community or the right to live, but rather the antagonism itself, it's, it's violence, right? Or thinking more so of Fanonian understanding of wretched of the earth. And I'm asking these two questions to kind of tied together this theme between critical black studies and black religion about ontological yearning. Um, and I think Calvin Warren says in his response to Anthony Penn's 
20th anniversary of terror and triumph that the issue of black religion is ontological yearning. And so it seems like the revolutionary is only a revolutionary because it cannot be and that the apocalyptic is only the apocalyptic because it cannot be. And what's organizing the revolutionary and the apocalyptic is being, even if it's through negation. And so what does it mean for this political subject, even though it is negating, to still be a response to being? Mm. Before you two respond, uh, for the sake of time, we'll hear Dr. Thomas's question. Um, and if there's one more, after Dr. Thomas, uh, we'll take that one. And then uh, there is one with Siobhan Kelly in the back. That will be our last question for now. And then we'll have the panelists respond. Dr. Thomas. Thank you all for um, really thought-provoking um, papers. I want to ask about black life. Um, perhaps the, the combination of blackness and aliveness or um, I'm, I'm kind of coming from a biblical studies place. I shall not die, but I shall live. Um, I come that you might have life and have life more abundantly. So I'm wondering about the prescriptions that you all have, like the impossible possibility of black life, the apophatic apocalypticism of black life, the revolutionary um, experience of a black life kind of connecting to Snorton's, what will it have meant that Black Lives Matter? And then we'll hear from Siobhan Kelly. Hi there, thank you all for your uh, wonderful comments today. My question is for Dr. James. Um, something I found really refreshing about your uh, talk this, this afternoon is uh, the attention to statist feminism or state feminism as a real place of danger. Um, perhaps this is from my own experience, uh, also being uh, trained in Catholic school, that I see a real um, solidarity that often appears between state feminism and religious organizationally based projects. And so I'm wondering if you have anything to say about how to imagine revolutionary activity either from within or without religion. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so just to rehash a question about um, ontological yearning, kind of the relation between um, black religion and black studies, right, on this particular question for Dr. Day and uh, Dr. James, a question about black living, um, and perhaps a kind of deeper interrogation of how that relates to perhaps ontological yearning, I would say, and then a, a, Third question about uh, state feminism uh, and its relation to religious organization, um, which I actually think also might be connected to ontological yearning. And so uh, we'll start there, and I think you all will work your way down. Okay, those are all incredible questions, and I'm, I'm just going to try. Um, so when you were talking about state feminism, I started to think about the Volk moms. Who are Nazis, and um, is it the Mothers of Liberty or the Liberty Moms who are like okay? So it sort of depends. There's attempt to capture the state. There's it's coming from, I would call them neo-fascists. You call them what you want. Ultra conservatives is a nice phrase. Um, then there's the liberal capture, which is our normative, and I also think it shapes 
our understanding of religion and ethics. That, you know, even though the Pope came out about environmentalism and also about what's going on in Germany about blessing, you know, same-sex marriages, it's, it's like minor, but it's something, right? The resistance to that makes the liberals seem vanguard. So the reactionaries make liberals seem edgy because the reactionaries are just so on the cliff. Like, we'll burn everything down just to get the perfect world. And like years ago, when I was growing up in Texas, the rapture was, you know, Jesus would come down and then take all the good souls, right? But Kathy Bulow and others have noted in their scholarship, the new rapture is that Jesus wants a genocide. So like you have to get rid of Jews, you have to get rid of Roma, you have to get rid of people of color, you have to get rid of LGBTQ. Like that's when Jesus will come, only if you do the quote, dirty work first. So there's like, so over the decades, that desire, because that's a desire too, right? That desire has been able to accumulate quite an arsenal, infiltrate the military, get trained 20 years warfare in the Middle East, that you know, they come back to be police. They're hyper-trained, they're very disciplined. Now, the state feminists who want to be liberals, their understanding, my read on them, is that I think of the captive maternal like as on a fulcrum, like a seesaw. We can just balance off the far right with the revolutionary left and just stay in the center, we'll be okay. But that's really not how it works, right? But since, my, and yeah, stop me if I'm like not being nice. Um, my experience over the decades, having been with like icons like decades ago and just watching from afar now, is that you, they would agree to the terms of liberalism and they would issue a promissory note. The Reverend King told you you weren't gonna be able to cash. But there was gonna be a promissory note that if you only remained in a law-abiding citizen, and you could work within the system, there would be non-reformist reforms. And I've written elsewhere that that's an oxymoron. But what I've seen recently is that the people who were arguing for state liberalism or you know, a status quo, it's like we're gonna cut a deal with the far right, like just, just stay in that lane and don't try to do another January you know, coup attempt, and we can, we can live with you even though we know they're killing people. So those people obviously can't live with them. But my understanding um, is when they made those agreements, their language is gonna have to shift, so now they're talking about war. So now they have to appear as the revolutionary even though they're the liberal. So, and once you put on the guise of the revolutionary and then deeply spiritual, but now it's a, a, a public spirituality, like, they promise you hope in the way in which you would read the New Testament. And now you don't have to read the New Testament because they're telling you that it's going to be okay. And you don't have to, so there's the promissory, like there's some divine way in which non-reformist reforms, freedom, dreams, I mean, all this language that is circulating now, it's fine if it's comforting, it's not okay if it's pacifying. Because you're going to actually miss the move when the reactionaries keep making the moves. Um, and then a couple other things. I mean, Rebecca, thank you, because you're so brilliant, but your, your questions are so dense that I'm gonna like just do my best and move on. Um, 
I've always said the thought of the captive maternal as moving through stages. And in the book, I say as this captive maternal ages, she's definitely going through stages. I mean, I'm talking postmenopause, right? I'm talking political stages. That you move from the caretaking, because you'd like to see your kids live longer than you, and you want your elders to die with some dignity, right? You move past that caretaking to the protest, then you move to the movement, and we all, you went through that with Black Lives Matter. You brought up Black Lives Matter, right? But Maranage, the stage of Maranage was not really pursued. Because the Maranage, like, that's when we ran. And we ran sometimes with Irish, sometimes with indigenous, but it's just like we're, we're leaving the enclosure. I would argue now it is prohibited in terms of leaving. Like, they would hunt you then, they will hunt you now. Because autonomy, black autonomy, I'll be specific, black autonomy is prohibited in a black world. So even if you're like, I'll go to the poorest land, I'll go to the mountains, I just want get to get out of this, that's not on the menu. That's not an option. And so I see with Maranage, every attempt at Maranage, there is a military endeavor. And so that's the one thing we, we never, I haven't heard the word war all day. I don't know how, this is what I meant about the language. Like what do you, I mean basically that's all I've been describing is warfare, right? And so if we're going to be hunted for wanting to be free and to move beyond the enclosure, my understanding is that we will accept our casualties and our deaths, but we will reproduce our love of life and love of spirit. And then you just keep doing it until something cracks. And I know, Rebecca, that's not a full answer, but it's the only thing that I can articulate. I see all of this as it's unfolding, and I don't go visit all these zones all the time. But when I go visit, I, I see the same thing. It's incredible levels of violence, faulty articulation, aspirations, and discipline to trust in liberal projects. And if you think about it, and this I'll close on this, in, in, the, in 19, remember Goodman, Schwerner, and Cheney? the two white youths and the black youth, Cheney. I remember that Lyndon Johnson only invited the white parents to the White House after all three were murdered, right? Because again, the disappearance of black agency, black love, black value. But also understand that President Johnson, who is gonna be better than the reactionary Southerners, was also funding mercenaries to kill African intellectuals and liberators on the continent. The difference between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party is real. I know Cornel West got bashed for trying to say that. But the intent is similar. So unless you leave the enclosure, you will have a kinder assassin. I, and there's a difference especially us, because we're not going to be targets. But that is not a fundamental change, no matter what Black Lives Matter thought they did or what they were paid to do. So, yeah, Rebecca, to your question. So, um, 
anti-blackness and its world-ending capacities. No, I think you're right. I think you're right to raise the question first about the apocalyptic, right? And this is something that I said um, in my presentation is that the way in which the Azusa uh, community used, or I should say embodied, uh, and deployed the apocalyptic um, was paradoxical uh, in that in some ways it recapitulated. Um, in this case, the ontotheological terms of the anti-black order, but, there, but simultaneously there was something else going on uh, in excess to that, right, and what I talked about. Um, but I'm curious, and I think, you know, we haven't had like real, you know, between those in black religion and those in black studies. I know some people are located in black religion where there is, uh, what I'm about to say, this more considerable overlap um, that might present an impasse or a creative tension. Um, but sort of, sort of the conversation about even, even if, for example, the apocalyptic sort of gestures or inaugurates a world-ending capacity, it doesn't change the position of the slave. Right? I mean, this is part of what you're talking about with respect to ontological yearning. Um, they're, they're still socially dead. But actually, I think that this is a presupposition that Scholars, I would, I would include myself, scholars in black religion and scholars in black studies probably contest, right? And I think this has to do with how one thinks or describes or defines social death, right? I'm thinking here of many, of course, like Christina Sharp that would say anti-blackness is total climate, right? Um, how, people think of, uh, so, how people think of social uh, death um, in terms of abjection is that total climate. Um, and part of what at least I was trying to get at in, in my paper is that I would like to think of, and, and, and I, I take Zakia Iman Jackson in talking about abject generativity, not that uh, there, you know, it, I don't think that she is making the argument that there is some sort of generative capacity that overcomes anti-blackness as such. But I, think, but, I, but I think what she's arguing is that there's this paradoxical latent power in the black maternal, in, in blackness, that even as it sort of produces abjection, it also has the capacity to disrupt and rupture, right? Um, the present meanings of an anti-black order. I mean, she, in this interview, she talked about her work in many ways, she sees it as the initiation of the dissolution of the anti-black world as such. And, and, and for me, like, when I read it, I'm like, I know she's not religious, but damn, this sounds religious, right? And, and, and so I, I guess what I'm getting at is that this will be a presupposition that I think, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm fully compelled by in terms of um, the slave as simply socially dead. And, and, and for me, this ties into your question. Um, how do we think about the relationship between the theoretical and material? We've been talking about this all day. Um, you know, so I, I look at Sylvia Winter and I see someone who is theoretically stunning in her conversation about, about decoloniality and blackness, but also wants to theorize that with respect to what she refers to throughout much of her work, the physical referent to blackness, right? Being communities of the African diaspora and the material conditions, and somehow that matters to the theorization of blackness as a theoretical position and paradigm, right? Um, and, and so for me at least, part of my discussion of spirit, the way I was describing spirit, is trying to think about that relationship. Um, and, and to be clear, that's one of my commitments. And I should put my cards out on the table. I don't think that methods and theories give, uh, methods and theories give us our commitments. I think that we come to methods and theories 
with commitments, right? Um, and I also think that methods and theories um, are representations of reality. But my point about the apocalyptic sort of making an epistemic intervention into the form of knowledge is actually related to how we think about representational understandings of knowledge, uh, namely through theory, is that it doesn't exhaust reality. And what I'm very concerned about is sort of when we think about um, language or theory representation at, in very absolutist ways as a kind of totalizing project, right? Um, in many ways that it doesn't make room for incalculability, for surprise, for um, unpredictability, for excess that cannot be captured by these theories as such. So to the point of the apocalyptic, um, I, I, again, I think that the way that they're using the apocalyptic absolutely is paradoxical. It is indicative of the recapitulation in some ways precisely to what you're talking about concerning ontological yearning. But simultaneously, I think that it's also doing a kind of work in attempting to disrupt and provide an opening to something like the end of the world and, and, and sort of an inauguration of what may lie on the other side of that. Um, so it's not an answer, but rather what I want to do is I want to play in the creative tension of, wh of what you're asking, right, concerning. But I do think that black, people in black religion and in black studies it beg, I feel like it's, you know, more conversation needs to be had around like what we disagree about, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? In terms of basic analytic categories um, with respect to this question, especially. Well, thank you all so very much um, for this really rich uh, panel discussion. Um, I wanted to, oh, yes. <laughs> Because we are nearing um, the very end of our time together, uh, we wanted to kind of spend just a few moments um, thinking about this colloquium as an ongoing conversation. And so um, with that in mind, kind of anticipating ways we might continue to extend the conversation. And so I wanted this to kind of be an open space, at least for the next 10 or so minutes, to kind of think aloud together about possible future collaborations and conversations. Um, so areas um, of focus that we might, or you know, around topics or themes, um, potential areas of study, um, also a space to kind of think about debates that were in the room but might not have been named. Um, and so if we could just kind of articulate and um, that both from the side of those who have presented today, if there's something uh, an earlier panelist has to say to someone who has presented and vice versa, this can also be that space. And so um, we have a microphone still in the room and so that can pass around. Uh, but thoughts, thoughts about how do we proceed from here? Um, I think of this moment as one in which there's a, a seeming synergy, I think, across um, several institutions that are now kind of turning to think about the relation of black religion to black studies. Um, and so uh, just last week, there was another conference at Columbia University. And here we are today kind of in the same waters. And so I think we should pay attention to that synergy in, in the press. And so um, I don't want people to just leave without um, thinking ahead about ways to extend the conversation. Um, thoughts? Yes, there's a hand over there. Thank you all so much. My name is Daniela Marie Malfi. I'm 
a Master's of Religion and Public Life candidate, which is a one-year academic year program. It is how do we create sort of the bridge between the spiritual and, and the secular in business. And one of the things that really struck me today in offering what this collaboration might look like in the future is actually in the classroom. I lost my breath when I heard that we want to be safe more than we want to be free. I want to thank you for that so much because it is true for me and I believe my peers and I am in this middle ground between feeling like I am an other in most inner communities, um, observing and wondering why there aren't more people like me, and also curious about how to create safe spaces in academic settings when violence is prevalent in different ways than it is out in the world and in business. Uh, we have a wonderful program related to diversity, inclusion, and belonging, and yet that still doesn't feel like enough a la minute in real time. I also am coming from a culinary background. I've been a chef for 15 years, and I'm interested in understanding what's this intersection between food and faith. And I actually think that these things and what I'm talking about, this notion, this desire, this craving for safety, is related and relatable to all people, no matter what you belong to or don't belong to. And so as I think about collaboration, one of the things that I yearn for today in feeling like I can get through this and successfully prepare myself for the future after this with my peers is actually how to train people what safety looks like and doesn't look like and why that's relevant. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Other thoughts? Reflections? Yes, there's a hand over here. Thank you. Thank you. To the, uh, this was just amazing. Um, so I'm, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I'm situated with the Native American Indigenous Studies. Um, and I went to a, um, a conference earlier this, this uh, spring, uh, Society of Early Americanists, um, and there was a track for uh, like on a um, you know you know foundational works in Black Studies, um, Toni Morrison, Paul Gilroy, Cedric Robinson, a whole track, and there was a whole other track on Native American Indigenous Studies, and they were simultaneous actually, and um, I was like. I have learned so much from Cedric Robinson about like a black radical tradition and thinking about uh, religiosity as part of that. Um, and that's actually something within native studies that I would like to like really kind of engage and think about those types of questions. So I guess that's part of my question is like thinking about how might these conversations overlap and engage with conversations, say in Native American indigenous studies and other fields as well. Thank you. Thank you um, to all of the brilliance and generosity that have been offered, including the imagination of this space. What I'm sitting with is um, the black, is blackness within black religion, and what constitutes that, right? Um, how do we engage 
uh, or what are the considerations that the multiplicity of blackness is not simply blackness within the United States or the boundaries of the United States, but um, blackness of peoples of African descent beyond that and the discourses that are relevant um, in spaces like this um, is you named um, imperial feminism. Um, how do we talk about imperial blackness um, while honoring the revolutionary thrust of black religious studies and the lineage of, of, of um, this conversation and why it's so significant to have? But how do we move to be um, inclusive of um, blackness as diasporic blackness, of, as multiplicity, as a multiplicity of cosmologies that are present but not necessarily um, centered and foregrounded, not as one center but a multiplicity of centers um, within the conversation such that we are honoring the legacies and the revolutionary thrust of um, from the shores of, 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 of Africa through the Black Atlantic, like the Haitian Revolution, Marinage, um, as a response and as world making um, as well. Mm -hmm. yeah. Thank you. Any other pressing thoughts, reflections, questions? So we have bookmarks. Um, Rebecca contributed, Ahmad contributed, which is about indigenous, Afro-indigenous, and African-American struggles. And there's a site. We got a bit of a Mellon grant at Williams. Um, and we posted round tables in which indigenous and people of African descent, we weren't able to do as international as we should have, right? Because this is all an anti-colonial endeavor. But if you want some bookmarks, I think they're over there. Um, and even though I don't have to say this, this has been incredibly generative, especially your contributions and queries. Yeah, I believe the bookmarks are at the registration table, um, and so you can grab them there. Um, but if all hearts and minds are clear, um, we can <laughs> we can um, we can leave this place. Um, and so I'm very grateful to all of you for being here uh, for this gathering. And uh, I'd like to just thank all of our speakers from this morning and, and this afternoon. And huge thanks to uh, my colleagues in the Office of Academic Affairs for their contributions to making this happen. I'd also like to just acknowledge Sue Min, if you could stand, who has been a tremendous support. Um, often thinking of the things that I have not been thinking about and already um, planning things ahead of uh, my even thinking about them. So I'm very grateful for her assistance uh, with making this all happen. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Dean Holland for being with us today and for the Divinity School's commitment to the study of black religion. Um, there's truly a, a lot of great energy here happening in this moment. And so we're very grateful uh, for administrative support 
to make that happen and because that is not always the case and so we are very grateful for that support and so with that said I'd like thank to you to Dr. Oh, Ahmad Green Hayes he ain't got nobody thank him thank you so much thank you um, that's all that's all I got um, <laughs> copyright 2023 President and Fellows of Harvard College